I'm in an undisclosed location, but if you listen very carefully, you might hear the sounds of a distant pickleball game in the background. It sounds a little bit like ping pong, and we may head up going that direction. But first, you were made to count. You were made to have an impact on other people. You have a drive for significance, and that's what we're talking about. That's a real good thing, but it gets distorted easily. So I want to talk today for a few moments about two words that sound quite similar, but are actually a world apart. And that is the decision to be centered or to be self-centered. Now, to be self-centered means that my world is really arranged around myself. Nancy and I have a person that we knew many, many years ago, and we would sometimes talk with them by saying, you know, your temptation is to think, here's the world and here's, uh, uh, no, 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 here's me and here's the world, that the world is revolving around me. And in fact, the world doesn't revolve around me. When I live a self-centered life, my focus is uh, my own well-being and particularly my own desires. I want my will to be done. Then we'll talk sometimes about a centered person, but it's interesting. If you are a centered person, you cannot be centered in yourself. To be centered, the idea there is that there's a kind of stability or a kind of rootedness, that I'm not just a tumbleweed that's blown around anywhere, but that I have uh, a deep source of attachment and nourishment to a purpose or values that are greater than myself. I think about uh, Paul's letter to the church at Colossae in the second chapter where he says, just as you receive Christ, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, being strengthened in your face and overflowing with gratitude, with thankfulness. And that image of being rooted in something that is deeper than myself or my own desires is central to human life. So I can be self-centered today. How can my will be done? How can my desires be satisfied? How can my appetites get gratified? Do things go well for me? Or I can live a centered life where I'm poised and not just reacting to circumstances, but living out of the values that I have pledged allegiance to because I am rooted in something, someone greater than myself. Now, uh, a little bit of an odd parable to illustrate this. There is a movie I have seen a number of times this last month. It's a wonderful movie. I don't actually need to see it again for a little while, but it's called Inside Out. It's an animated movie. It was uh, directed and I think written or partly written by Pete Docter, who interestingly enough is a committed follower of Jesus Christ, uh, was or has been for many, many years a part of First Presbyterian Church in Berkeley. And one of the primary consultants on the movie, if you have ever seen it, is a guy named Paul Ekman. Paul is a genius psychologist, social psychologist at uh, UC Berkeley, one of the preeminent experts on emotions and the neuropsychology of emotions in our day. So this movie is the story of a girl. She's about 12 years old. Her crisis is that her family leaves from Minnesota and goes to San Francisco, California, where there is no ice for ice hockey, and they ruin pizza by putting broccoli on it, and her world is turned upside down. The genius of the movie is that it shows her outer life, but then it shows her inner world. And part of the work that Ekman has done is to show that there are foundational emotions that each one of us carries. So you see this little council, the emotional uh, console of her life, and there is joy and also anger, hilarious little red stumpy guy, fear, tall skinny guy with a bow tie, um, disgust about a 14-year-old girl, 
and um, and then sadness. And part of the thrust of the film is to recognize that to live a flourishing, centered life, I have to make space for all the emotions of my life, and I cannot deify any of them or shut any of them down. The temptation is, particularly with an emotion like sadness, to not want to experience sadness. And so part of what happens is joy draws a little circle and says to sadness, you cannot leave this circle. But of course, that does not work. And part of what happens in the movie is sadness plays a very key role. When the girl is tempted to run away from home, it is the experience of being sad about the thought of missing her mom or her dad that causes her to make a much better decision. And so to embrace the reality of all of our emotions is clear. And at the same time, to recognize from a New Testament perspective that joy is made to be the basic posture or the basic orientation out of which we operate. Um, on all the other emotions, the Bible puts certain kind of limits. Let everyone be slow to anger, James says. Fear not comes up over and over again. And when it comes to sadness, weeping endures for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. Disgust, but the closest that comes biblically is uh, to judge other people, to be in disgust or in contempt over them. Judge not lest you be judged. But joy, that is to be our basic and pervasive orientation. I've said these things to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. But if I idolize joy rather than worshiping God, and demand that I have a certain kind of inner experience, it will never work, and I will forever actually be at the mercy of my emotions, and that leads to self-centered living. We are called to be centered in others. And there's a character in the movie that expresses this in a wonderful way, who tells the oldest and most powerful story in the world. uh, In the movie, these two emotions, joy and sadness, end up going down to um, uh, where long-term memories get stored. It's kind of a brilliant movie from a neurological and psychological point of view. They're down there where the long-term memory gets stored. They're away from headquarters, away from the console, and they run into the girl's imaginary friend that she used to love when she was two or three or four years old, who is kind of no longer wanted anymore. He's bing bong. He's this very strange imaginary, part cotton candy, part elephant, part dolphin. You just love this character. And he loves the girl. He's going to help joy and sadness make it back to headquarters. And then there's a series of problems. And bing bong and joy end up down where memories go to die, down in the memory dump. And it's apparent that uh, they're not going to make it. And the girl can never be healthy or flourishing without joy. And then they found this old wagon that was powered by song that Bing Bong used to love to play with with the girl. And they figure that they can make it back up to um, uh, where the long-term memories are, make it back to headquarters by using this wagon. They hop in it. They start singing songs to power it. It almost makes it up to get them out of the valley of where memories go to die up to that ledge, but it doesn't quite make it. And so they try it again. They're singing their brains out. Almost makes it, doesn't quite make it. And then Bing Bong, this silly imaginary friend, says to Joy, let's try it one more time. I got a good feeling about this one. And he sees his hand beginning to disappear. He recognizes that where he is down in the lost memory, dead memory area, um, 
there is no more existence and his existence is soon going to end. So they get back into the wagon and they start singing and the wagon shoots up and he says to Joy, sing, Joy, sing really loud. And she does. And, and then he hops out of the wagon and she gets more and more excited. Joy does. She doesn't know he's left the wagon and she keeps singing. And this time it makes it all the way up to the edge of the cliff and she's able to land and she will be safe and she will make it back to headquarters. But then you see, you know, the treasured memory of this girl, uh, will stay down where memories go to die and his existence will be done and he will be remembered no more. And when Joy realizes this and looks down, you know, she's horrified. But when you see Bing Bong down there, again, it's just this silly animated movie, but it's just killing me watching this. Uh, instead of being sad about his own fate, he is so deeply glad that Joy is going to be able to make it back to the girl that he loves and help her to flourish, that he's dancing up and down. We did it. We did it. We did it. And then he says, take her to the moon for me. It is the oldest story and the one that we cherish in story after story after story. Greater love has no one than this, that a person should lay down their life for their friends. And that is why we are to center our lives in Jesus, for he was the most centered person who ever lived and his life is centered in others. And that is why his community will always look a bit eccentric, uh, to be other-centered, eccentric. Concentric circles all share the same center. To be eccentric means to have a center that is outside of the circle, outside of the self. And we are to be centered in God and then centered in the love for others. So that's the invitation today. God, could you help me go through this life centered, rooted in Jesus, not living at the mercy of my circumstances and whether I think something good or bad has happened as it relates to me? Would you help me be centered in love for you and love for others, decentered, eccentric from myself? We learn to do this by being genuinely interested and curious in others. It's a remarkable thing when a little baby is born to the parents, to the ones who love the baby. They just want to know about that baby. When did she go to sleep last night? When did she wake up? What did, how, much, how many ounces did she drink? Uh, every detail about her. What is she interested in is fascinating to the people. What's happening then is I am being decentered. My life is becoming arranged a little bit more. And the strange thing is, uh, as long as my life is self-centered, it will be miserable. It is death. But when it gets decentered, when it gets centered into others, genuinely interested in other people, life flows back at me. It just simply works that way. That is the cruciform nature of life. That's part of what happens when we live to make a difference in the lives of others. Yesterday, I was talking to a friend and I asked a favor, would you help me with something? I didn't know how he was going to respond. He got so excited, he literally got out his yellow legal pad and started making notes about how he might be able to help me with something. And I was so grateful on that thought. Somebody needs your help today. Somebody needs an errand run. Somebody expresses a concern. Get out the legal pad. Start writing down, how could I help you? Greater love has no man, no woman than this, that I become uh, decentered from my old self-centered life and become rooted, re-centered in Jesus and an interest of, concern for, care about, curiosity over the lives of other people. That is how we count. Be eccentric. Make a difference. I love you.
Thanks for joining us here at becomenew.me. If you'd like to receive the daily emails that go along with each video, let us know at becomenew.me at gmail.com. Or if you want prayer, you can text us at 855-888-0444. Thank you.